Hey everyone, you're in good traffic. I'm Brad Beal. Thank you so much for coming back to another episode of the show. This week we're going to do a quick weekly walkabout, reacting and discussing briefly an article um, that came out a couple of weeks ago. We've had uh, tabbed here to come back and discuss a little bit um, because I think it speaks to something that a lot of us in the urbanism conversation are continuously pushing for, but I think a lot of cities and, and more so metro areas continue to get wrong or, or misunderstand or um, miscategorize um, when we talk about cities, their purpose, um, and also just how we best situate them and grow them as we look forward. So this article comes from the Columbus Dispatch, um, the, the newspaper and news outlet, leading news outlet in my hometown of Columbus, Ohio, um, one of the fastest growing cities in metro areas in the United States, especially in the Midwest. Um, and this article is called, Why Aren't Columbus Suburbanites Visiting the Short North? Study Examines Challenges. This came out on February 7th, written by Mark Ferenczyk. And uh, I think this article, I, I mean, we will link it below, obviously. And for those that don't know, the Short North is kind of the densest and most mixed-used area of downtown Columbus. It, it, it's the area that's in and around High Street, um, the main commercial strip that goes from the city on the north side up towards the Ohio State University campus. It's where you'll find a lot of the neat boutiques, where you'll find a lot of the best restaurants, rooftop bars, um, just clubs and bars in general. Um, it's bordered on both sides by Italian Village, Victorian Village, um, some of the coolest most historic neighborhoods in the city as well. Lots of young, vibrant things happening in and around there. And it's also just a spectacle um, in the metro area for kind of a different and uh, very, again, urban feeling shopping destination, restaurant destination, and the like. So this article talks in a decent amount of detail about why, um, through some surveys and some other thinking of why suburbanites from the Columbus metro area maybe are, are, are visiting the short north less than they used to, are making that trip to downtown Columbus to that dense area, that really neat mixed-use area, less than they did in the past. It goes into some of the retail vacancies and the rates of that and how that's uh, changed and altered in recent years and, again, discusses those challenges. Um, you can read the article if you want. It, it, it's in the description. I think it's you know an interesting thing that you could probably find written similarly about in, in a lot of cities, right? This is a Columbus example, but I think it, it exists in a similar way in a lot of places where, you know, you have this area that, that looks like what we think a downtown kind of strip looks like, but for some reason it's not flush with um, the greatest retail at all times and it, it struggles with challenges of maintaining vacancy and, or I'm sorry, of combating vacancy and maintaining long-standing retail options and things like that. And I think a lot of these cities are often grappling with how they can better make these areas last and exist and have that longevity where I think it, this, this is a little misguided in the way it's framed. And the entire reason that I wanted to talk about this and have this kind of be a little standalone weekly walkabout episode is I think the question in the way it's posed around suburbanites visiting the short north or suburbanites visiting a downtown mixed-use area and framing that as the kind of key driver of the retail success and of the vibrancy, economic vibrancy of an area 
is it's actually completely misrepresenting what a city is, what the role of a city is, and how we should be planning our development patterns, our land use, and all these things to actually create a city that is situated to last longer than, you know, a one retail cycle or one year or even seasonally. I, I think that the question is really scary when we think about how we actually look at successful examples of cities and how opposite that is um, from how this is set up to basically say and to assume largely that suburbanites visiting the short north are the reason that the short north can be economically viable, sustainable, and successful. Now, what I'm not doing is discrediting anything that was said in the article explicitly or that this is not true in places like Columbus, that perhaps those visitors from the suburbs are necessary for maintaining and, and, and helping those businesses in those dense areas thrive. That might be the case. What I am saying is if that is the case, that means that that city has bigger problems that they need to solve in terms of how they develop, how they promote land use, how they promote, promote real estate, all of these various things, right? Like, I think that is the real crux of what I'm getting at. That The article itself is not bad. I'm not saying anything is wrong about it. What I'm saying is that when we talk about these things, and again, this is one example, Columbus, Ohio. I think it's very indicative and microcosmic of this larger narrative that goes on, which is, if this area is failing, it's because we're not making it easy enough for visitors or we're not attracting enough visitors or it's always about the visiting groups that we're bringing into the area. The suburbanites often, the folks that aren't living right along this corridor or in the adjacent neighborhoods. What I think is the reason why we will continue to have conversations like this, we will continue to have articles written in this vein is because exactly and precisely we are looking at it in this way. As long as we are dependent on people driving to a downtown area, to a mixed-use area, to a dense area, as long as we're dependent on those folks for that economic viability, we are always going to see high turnover. We are always going to see um, higher vacancy rates than we'd like over the long term, right? Like the first couple of years, different story. But over the long term, those problems are going to persist. The reason is because if we really boil this down and we think about it, if you're developing an area that is in a city center or as the short north is right adjacent to the city center in the downtown amongst the skyline, etc., but you're creating that space that is in that city, for people that don't live there and primarily for suburbanites, you're relying on them, you're attracting them, then what you're essentially doing is you're creating a mall that has less parking and harder situations to get to than a mall would. So in the suburbs, we have these big malls with these seas of parking lots, right, that you're never not going to be able to find a spot because they built so many of them. In Columbus, I think, of you know, we have Easton, we have Polaris, we have Tuttle. That's where suburbanites have historically shopped and where, you know, those places do make sense that we would rely. We would think about, hey, how are we going to get suburbanites here? How are we going to, you know, attract them? Because that is the key clientele base for those areas. That's why they were built the way they are. That's why malls have been the way they are in this country. The short north is not a mall, but in this, the way we frame things like this article, we're treating it almost like a mall. We're saying 
hey, how do we get people that don't live around here to come and frequent the strip? How do we make this place successful by getting more of those people here? And why are they not coming? And this is the primary cause. But that's what a mall is. And this is not a mall. We're talking about a city. We're talking about a beautiful, walkable, mixed-use, dense area of a city that maybe is being propped up by suburban uh, trips inward, but that that is not the path towards longevity, the path towards future. And so what I would implore places like Columbus, what I would implore, you know, those that are writing about these things, and again, this is no shade to this article. They were just pointing something out and results of kind of some of this this uh, anecdotal evidence and other things totally valid. What I'm saying, though, is I think there's a really cool role in starting to reframe the longevity and success of places like the short north of dense, walkable, downtown, vibrant areas, mixed-use areas around the people that live in those neighborhoods. And if you say, well, Brad, there's not enough people in those neighborhoods to sustain all those businesses. That's why we need the folks from the suburbs, and that's why they are the driving economic force. I would say, exactly. That's that's what I'm getting at. That's kind of where I think we really need to have a conversation in our American cities is right there at that sweet spot, is right there at that point where we're going, is this a neighborhood? Is this truly this vibrant mixed-use neighborhood that we've situated it to be? Or is that actually just the aesthetic appearance that we've given to the place? And in practical um, experiential terms, it's actually a mall with just harder parking and therefore over an extended period of time and actually as popularity gains, usership might go down because certain people are going to defer to a place where it's easier to park, right? If we're relying on suburbanites, we have to think like a suburbanite in terms of how we're moving. And if car is the primary mode, yes, there's easier places to drive to than the downtown city center or, you know, very inner inner city sorts of shopping and, and retail and restaurant destinations. So you can see why certain pockets of um, kind of fake density or different kinds of density in the suburbs might take the cake. They might take the advantage there. So I just think we need to really start framing of, is the solution to um, floundering retail or high turnover in retail or high vacancy in retail in these mixed-use attractive areas of our cities, is the solution to attract more suburbanites and to continue to talk about that as the primary driver of success or failure? Or rather, should these neighborhoods and should these cities be talking about how can we create more people living here in this neighborhood and in adjacent neighborhoods that can walk, bike, or access via transit, this retail, these restaurants? And if we look at it as a neighborhood, that's the clear solution. A neighborhood where people are living, a neighborhood where people are shopping, where they're working. The key is more housing in these areas. The key is building up the social infrastructure through putting that hardware in that allows people to then integrate into the retail, into, into the mixed-use areas, to then propagate it with the software, to then propagate it with the human element. But the more density in it, it doesn't have to be this harsh density, but the more soft density that we can build in and around areas like the short north, the stronger that those areas are going to become over the long haul and also the more truthful and real, right? We're not propping it up. We're not saying that, oh, these places are successful because, you know, we gave free parking for the first five years or whatever the case may be. No, it's successful because they are intertwined by residents 
that are multi-generational, that have different income levels, different jobs, different backgrounds, and they are frequenting those places because they live right around the corner from them. They live above them. Their friend lives above them. They live a few blocks away. Like it could be a whole a whole bunch of stuff. But I think that areas like the short run need to look at this and they need to go, hey, and cities like Columbus need to look at this and be like, hey, maybe the answer in the conversation around why suburbanites aren't visiting is the complete wrong conversation we need to be having. And maybe what we should be talking about instead is how do we get more people living in the short North neighborhood? Because then the businesses that are there and that are going to be successful, that's going to be an afterthought. Because of course, everyone that's going to live there is one to want walkable retail, walkable shopping, walkable restaurants and the like. So I think we're starting at the wrong place. I think continuing to bring it back to the suburbanites and giving all of that responsibility to them is not fair to anyone in the situation. And I don't think it is how any successful city that has lasted for decades has ever been built and has ever been driven. Um, we think about Jane Jacobs. We think about how any of our predecessors who are really, you know, keen on the the organic growth of a place and they would be very much against this idea, I think, of trying to artificially propagate an area with success by promoting suburban involvement and suburban commuting into that area, especially via car, as is the case in Columbus, where, you know, vast, mass majority of trips, if not all trips from the suburbs that far out are being taken um, via car. So I think we just need to reframe these things. Again, this is not just a Columbus issue. This is a pretty much every city in the country, I think. Um, but we need to stop looking at neighborhoods as places where suburbanites pass through and visit. And we need to look at them as places where people live and people operate on a day-to-day -day basis. A city that I think has done a great job of this. Um, and I've, you know, anyone that has listened to this show and that, that I've known and had conversations with in the urbanism space knows that I'm extremely bullish on Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, Minneapolis is my favorite city in the U.S. Um, I've been pretty open about that. Uh, weather, not so much, but city, absolutely. And the main reason for that is because they have been a guinea pig and they have been willing to take risks. We call them risks, quote unquote, um, as it pertains to some of the housing policy and some of the land use and zoning sorts of changes that are very commonplace amongst the urbanism movement. You know, we talk about things like removing parking minimums. Minneapolis was one of the first main cities in the U.S. to do, major cities in the U.S. to do that over the last decade or so. Um, we talk about, you know, removing single family zoning. So allowing for um, more development of, of different sizes on our single family lots, or what have traditionally been, rather, single family lots citywide. Minneapolis has led the way in trying that out for an American city over the last some odd years here. Um, we talk about things like building, building height minimums on transit and kind of uh, transit oriented corridors on high density designated corridors. Minneapolis has led the way on that, right? We still have a lot of cities and a lot of areas of cities in this country that have building height maximums. So you can't build above a certain floor height. Minneapolis and a lot of other cities, but Minneapolis has put these minimums in along transit routes and some other designated corridors to say you can't build a building shorter than this, which means if you're going to undertake and undergo the effort of developing real estate in one of these areas that is very similar to what we would say the short north is in Columbus, Ohio, 
well, you're not going to build a one or two or three or even four story building. No, if you're going to build a building here, if you're going to develop and you're going to get the economic benefit of developing and, and running a a piece of real estate in one of these areas, you're going to build it that's to to a certain height and to a certain level that it's supporting new housing. It's supporting different kinds of housing, a diversity of housing, a different, um, you know, a, a vast range in pricing of housing so that we can grow the neighborhood holistically and we can keep that housing supply at or above demand. In Minneapolis, as a city that has done this again, faster and more so, not necessarily faster, but first in comparison to a lot of the other cities, they have seen incredible results. This Pew Research study came out on January 4th, and I've you know, been saying this to anyone that'll listen because it talks about my favorite city in the U.S. and the blueprint that they've offered for housing affordability. And the kind of most stark um, data point that comes out of that whole article is that from 2017 to 2022, Minneapolis increased its housing stock by 12% while rents grew by just 1%. We've all seen the stories. Almost every single metro in the United States, every single city in the United States has this massive housing shortage and has seen rents grow quite substantially. We'll link these articles too so you can see how those trends compare. Um, but Minneapolis actually outpaced their rent growth by a sizable amount by increasing their housing stock by 12% in the last five to six years. That is amazing, first of all. But it also, again, is because they leaned into the core tenets of American urbanism, at least how I would define them. And that's how this Pew Research article actually breaks it down perfectly here. You know, eliminating parking minimums for all new developments. Check. Encourage apartment development on commercial corridors. Again, if we draw the parallel to Columbus, Ohio, Short North High Street is the commercial corridor in the city of Columbus. Okay, so are we encouraging apartment development on those commercial corridors? Minneapolis said, check the corridor districts there. They permit three to six story buildings and most of the transit routes. Well, transit districts allow for 10 to 30 story buildings on lots adjacent to light rail stations and bus rapid transit. Okay. In that same vein, Minneapolis said, we're going to establish building height minimums in high density zones. So throughout, throughout downtown, they're establishing these minimums check right these are again all urbanism playbook and the last one is permitting duplexes and triplex construction on all residential lots this one um, the article talks about and i've heard this in other places california certain parts of california talked about it similarly this one sometimes can have a lesser effect because um, the economics don't always play out as well right like if you if you have you enable more than just a single family home to be built on certain lots, sometimes with construction costs and everything, it just doesn't make uh, perfect sense. But it is still a very valuable and necessary step um, to give that 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 laterality and that flexibility for folks and developers to do different things with lots and not be hindered by some antiquated policy or rule that says that for whatever reason there can only be one home on a lot. So this is a massive massive shift as well that definitely is having an impact. Um, but a lot of the other things around the corridors and around the density that I'm talking about would be great to see in Columbus continue to happen more and more. It's happened to an extent, but not to the extent that Minneapolis is seeing it happen. And 
I think the more we that cities start to read stuff like this, and obviously I'm not saying they aren't, they definitely are, and start to study what's happening in places like Minneapolis, Minneapolis excuse me, and seeing how they've progressed and how they've actually had great success with these sorts of policies that these policies that a lot of folks have said, you know, these are just the the urbanists or this is just what the environmentalists or the crazy folks on one side of the political aisle want to see happen. I think as more and more cities continue to see those development patterns having a real positive impact on a city like Minneapolis, they're going to continue to to take those quote-unquote risks and try those things as well because they become less of an unknown and more data-backed. I think that is all I wanted to touch on this week. Again, that was uh, just something that I've been taking a few notes on the last couple weeks. And that article when I read the dispatch, kind of just something about it bugged me. Again, it wasn't the article itself. It was the way that we frame these things around suburbanites being the driving factor and the root cause for success or failure of a downtown district of a dense, dense corridor, supposedly dense corridor in a city. That should never be how it is. We should be building neighborhoods for the people that are living there primarily. Not to say that they don't facilitate visitors. Obviously important. That's a whole nother conversation we could talk about. About, you know, improving transit and making it easier for folks to access those areas. A hundred thousand percent. But our primary goal in building neighborhoods is to build those neighborhoods for the residents of neighborhoods and to increase the umbrella in which that that encompasses, right? So we want more people to be able to enjoy those neighborhoods. And the more people that do the more retail can be fulfilled and sustained and the more vibrancy can be achieved. So let's keep looking at the good examples. Let's keep finding places like Minneapolis in the Midwest that are crushing it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of cities in the U S that are in that two to 5 million person range as a city or a metro area in and around the lines of Minneapolis, Minneapolis, St. Paul. There's a lot of things that are transferable between what they've done and what this Pew study kind of wraps up and puts a nice little bow on. Um, I'm excited for Columbus to keep trying some of these ideas. I'm excited for other Midwest cities too. I'm excited for American cities too, because I think the sorts of things, the bullet points we ran through a bit ago that Minneapolis is doing, what we maybe see Columbus a little behind on or some other cities a little behind on, those are the tenets and the core principles and the pillars that I think we are and should be building American urbanism on which is the point of this whole good traffic thing. So that's how it ties in. We'll be back next week. We have an awesome guest. Um, I'll actually go ahead and announce it now. I don't, I'm not, not been big on announcements. I like to just let them come out, but I'm really excited for this. We're going to have Mallory batches on the president of the Congress for new urbanism. Pretty pumped about it. She's awesome. We got that conversation coming up. We've been chatting a little bit, getting ready for that. Um, We're going to press record on those mics and get that to you all for next week. Um, We'll be talking about new urbanism as an idea, as a concept, as a practice, and as a model going forward. And uh, can't wait for you all to hear Mallory's thoughts. Um, But thank you each so much. Have a great rest of your week. Bye, everybody.